Lights alive. How do we know she is alive? I hate when people talk during the movie. No wire hangers ever! You are tearing me apart, Lisa! Your stupid minds. Stupid, stupid! Relax. It's all in bad taste. Hello. My, My name is Elder Price. Price. <laughs> Go try it again. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to Aftertaste, the Bad Taste Buds supplementary show where we continue to talk trash about your favourite best worst films. I'm your host Liam and I am joined today by the ever so beautiful, ever so gorgeous Ryan. You missed off effervescent. Ever so effervescent. Because I can't say it, that's why I missed it off. Because I've got no idea how to fucking pronounce anything if you listen to the last episode. Inaugural. 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 We are here with Aftertaste. This is our 0.5 episode where we kind of just go a little bit further into detail about our favorite Best West films. So what this usually ends up being is us looking at either a documentary, some behind-the-scenes footage, maybe even a comic book every now and again. Or just an extended bitch. Or just, yeah, sometimes we like to get together and have a little bitch. It's just me and Ryan today. Jack and Hannah are on annual leave. Uh, just uh, they've, they've taken a vacation to Nilbog. They've done a house swap. I hope they come back poisoned. I mean, they definitely haven't because of quarantine, so just in case the fucking quarantine police are out there. Hannah and Jack are not house swapping right now, um, but they are not with us for this point five. It's just me and Ryan. Today we're talking about Best Worst Movie, released in 2009. This is the documentary written and directed by Michael Paul Stevenson. It follows the cast and crew of Troll 2, 18 years after the release of the film. And if you haven't been paying attention, Michael Paul Stevenson played Joshua Waits, he was, the yeah. family's child. That really obnoxious, loud, annoying child who everyone wanted to murder. If you ask Don Packard. Well, yeah, at least Don Packard wanted to murder. We'll get a little plot synopsis soon, but there is a scene later on where one of the cast fully wanted to murder this child, like he was that annoying. And I relate to that on a spiritual level. <laughs> Let's get on with a quick synopsis of this film. This takes place 18 years after the 1990 film Troll 2. It starts in a bit of an odd fashion, I would say. It follows our, uh, what do you say, like like supporting leading man, George Hardy? Yeah, I'd say, like, Joshua Waits is really the star, but yeah. he's behind the camera the entire time. Yeah, little Joshua is getting a chance at directing this time. You've learned early on that he had quite a bad experience with the release of this film. He always wanted to be a big star. Didn't really turn out that way, but this is him kind of redeeming himself, getting a little chance to direct something. And uh, you know what? What a redemption. Yeah. Like, what's him. this on Rotten Tomatoes? This is on, like, 98%, which <laughs> couldn't get any further from Troll 2. We open the film with a look at what George Hardy, the secondary leading man, would you say? Yeah, I would say secondary. Josh was the star, but he's behind the camera this time, so instead, they got the dad of the Waits family to fill in. I would say the most charismatic person you could have picked. I think they did a good choice choosing him as the narrator. Oh, yeah, you get highs and lows with him as well, which it's, is even better. It's a weird intro. Like, I think you were saying how off-put you were by the intro. It's very, like, fly in the wall. We kind of start the film in his home as he's, like, making breakfast. We were watching it, and for the first five minutes of the movie, while we follow George Hardy around his house, while he makes breakfast, talks about being a dentist, and is about to set off for work, and it's so bizarre. I thought I was watching the wrong movie, or we'd put the wrong disc in, and there had to be something <laughs> wrong. It almost feels... did not make sense. It almost feels like it's, like, a documentary about dentistry, and I, like, you kind of follow him on his morning morning routine you, you follow him to his place of work you like have whole extended scenes where he's talking to his receptionist and his clients and stuff and i think he's just this 
the most happy-go-lucky, cheery human being you'll ever see in your life. And it, you know what? It brightened my day up anyway. See, I like to think of him as the most fake attention-seeking human being that I've ever seen. Well, that's because he's from sunny Alabama. Alabama. He is, like, the most stereotypically American. Apologies to any American listeners that we're offending right now, but he is, like, definition textbook. Look him up in the dictionary. The cheeriest American. I'm seeing this as a positive. I think he's really, really, like, genuinely like a ray of sunshine in this film. He goes around constantly cracking jokes, trying to make everybody smile. Right. Walks around with a plastered smile on his face, and it just feels fake because he's looking for attention. And later on in this documentary, my points were proven. George, right, you're, you're complaining because he was too happy. You're complaining because he was too nice. That's your complaint. Yes, later on in the movie where he's a bit of a okay. dick, it humanizes him a okay, bit more. Well, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I would want George Hardy as my dentist. Are you saying you wouldn't want George Hardy as your dentist? Oh, he could be my dentist, yeah. That sense of... Fake reassurance absolutely works for me when I'm in a dentist chair, but when I'm having to watch a man walk around, interact with other humans all day, it gets a bit squeamish. I'd let him strap me down and put things in my mouth. I'm not even going to touch that. <laughs> Just dead air. Yeah, so it follows George Hardy. I would say for the first, I mean, for the whole film, it follows George Hardy, but it kind of jumps back and forth between him and Claudio Fragrasso, the director. There are probably two main protagonists, the, right? Yeah, they're our main avatars of the yeah. series, but there are others there as well. I mean, Stevenson gets quite a lot of time in front of the camera as well as behind the camera. Like, the film opens with him telling us about his experience while getting the VHS for Christmas, kind of watching it with his family, and basically never wanting to act again. It kind of ruined his, his this dream he had of being this famous child actor. How could you after this? No one's going to take you seriously as shown by Connie Young, uh, Holly Waits, the daughter of the Waits yeah. family. She was saying that as soon as they find out she was on Troll 2, that's it, she's leaving, knowing she's not getting that job. Yeah, there was a few, so it, it follows Connie, it follows um, Robert Olmsby, the, the actor who plays Grandpa Seth. Uh, got Jason F. Wright. Yeah, we have, uh, what was the, um, Don, pa- Don Packard, the drugstore owner, was oh, a kind yeah, of a big of one. Don Packard. Who we didn't talk that much about in the main episode, did we? No, but we're definitely going to have to cover him today. He is a character and a He's half. brilliant. He's, you know what, he's genuinely quite, and Margot Prey as well, the actress who played the mother, who's kind of on the other end of the spectrum, if George is the most beamy, sunny, happy person Margot's, it's almost like a sad, I guess, a bit of a sob story, really. Like, the what happened to her it's pretty hard in the after effects of the film. So, yeah, in case you hadn't seen, uh, I mean, you should have. Go back and listen to Troll 2, episode 1, if you haven't. Um, but basically, yep, Troll 2 is one of the worst movies ever made. One of the most entertaining worst movies ever made. Whereas Best Worst Movie is probably one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. Nothing's going to come It's just back. thoroughly entertaining from beginning to end. There's, it, so it, kind of, it follows the actors, it interviews the actors, it asks them about their experience. But not only that, that's kind of where a standard documentary might leave you. But we kind of follow these people through conventions, the Nilbog, what was it, the Trollympics was the big one in Utah? Yeah, the Trollympics, that looks pretty out there. For anyone who hasn't seen the documentary, you can actually watch it on the multi-disc that we have. So the, the most readily available available blu-ray for this is the three disc edition with troll one troll two and best worst on it it's well worth a watch even if you aren't massive into your best worst films it's still a really good documentary they have these uh the, what they, they call it the trollympics which is just one of the best names i've ever heard for anything ever and they do these like, kind of trollympic games um people jumping around in plant pots plant pots which one of my favorite games i, I think we need to bring this to our I, I don't know. I feel like we need a UK version. This needs to go global. My feet would not fit in those plant pots. Your feet wouldn't. Your feet don't fit in shoes. Where is that? But yeah, it, it kind of goes through the resurgence this film had. It it kind of discusses its dead period, where from obviously its release up until about like the mid two thousands, no one was really paying attention to it, and then it kind of garnered a lot of popularity through the VHS sales, and then people started congregating. People started like talking and. 
And obviously in Alabama, where Mr. Hardy is, the whole town is kind of obsessed with Troll 2, aren't they? Yeah, well, they've got a local star. How can they not be obsessed with this? Plus, he's a really charismatic guy in the community. They say every year he dresses up as a roller skating tooth fairy just to please the crowds. I love him. Again, that's for his own sense of self-satisfaction. You, I clearly have an issue with George Hardy. If you're listening, George, I'm going to defend you till the very fucking end. So, because yeah, he, he, he is a big character. He's a massive character. But no one has a bad word to say about him. His ex-wife, of all people, like you think ex-wife, you're probably going to have some dirt on him. But no, he's, he's clean as a whistle. All of his patients like him, all the people in the neighborhood like him. I love the, the fact that he gets gets people together like once he realizes there's this cult of appreciation for troll 2 he like puts his own screening of the film on in order to raise money for the school which i think is really cute i think That's it's adorable really cute. i mean and it's nice that a lot of people go as well and when they do show it in his community with all the people who were uh, there's quite a lot of elderly people mm. there and they come out of the movie after watching it, even though he's explained that's not a good movie. Yeah. They are just silent, and he says the tone is completely different when they watch it with the cult of appreciation. Yeah. When everyone does laugh along, compared to when you're watching it with the layman who's trying to understand what's actually happening and take this as a serious movie. It does feel like there's two camps of people, people who understand Troll 2 and people who don't know why you're doing this to them. Like, it's like, there are people watching this like, mostly old people. There were people watching this trying... There was, like, a really funny scene where they were like, yeah, the, the old people were trying to, like, dissect the film and understand it, and everyone else was just having a really good time. But let's quickly move on to um, a few of the other actors in this. I know there was an interview with uh, with Stevenson, the director, and obviously the actor who played Joshua Waits, saying he had quite a bit of trouble getting uh, Connie Young, the actress who plays his sister Holly, back to actually do these interviews. I think... You, you were saying earlier, Ryan, that she more than anyone was trying to forget that this was a part of her past. She really wanted to distance herself away from this movie yeah. so she could continue a career in acting. And yeah. you can't get away from it. The no. internet exists. And as soon as you go in for an interview, they are going to Google you to make sure you have been in what you've said you're mm. in. Make sure your IMDb's up to scratch. Well, this is it. Like She could be the best actress in the world, but she forever has Troll 2 on her CV. If I was a if I was a director, that would be reason enough for me to hire you. I wouldn't even need to see you act. I'd be like, yeah, fuck it, you're in my film. Oh, absolutely. I think they all deserve a second chance at acting. I mean, George is a dentist, so I guess he's set for it. He's desperate to act again, though. He's no, he's desperate. Desperate. But that's what I mean. Like, you think he's insincere, which, yeah, fair enough. But do you, want, do you often wonder whether or not the fact that he's, like, so happy all the time? And he's, do you think he's just constantly acting? Do you think he was born to act? Yes, I think he's constantly acting, but just because you can play one character doesn't mean you're a good actor. Happy-go-lucky village dentist isn't exactly an inspiring role everybody wants to play in Rush 2. Uh, I don't know about you, but I was extremely convinced that he had hunger pains when he tightened his belt, so fuck you. <laughs> which, bringing on to that, the how many times did we count how many times he said the line in this? Which I actually want to want to clarify, I fucked up the line on episode one, and I'm so upset about it. So here, here's me doing it again. You see this writing? You know what it means? Hospitality. And you can't piss on hospitality. I won't allow it. Do you feel good now? I feel so good. Because I, I, I knew I fucked it up on the first episode. I, re I realized as I was doing it, I was like, I can't. I can't retake that now. So I'm glad I got my... Re I, I feel like I got my redemption. <laughs> so that makes you, Michael Paul Stevenson, and nobody else from this movie. I mean, George Hardy's pretty happy. I wouldn't say you got redeemed in this, though, would you? I don't think he needed to be redeemed. I feel like his performance was exceptional. It spoke for itself. <laughs> it did. It's <laughs> but yeah, he's a, he, I think he's just a wonderful human being from beginning to almost the end. I'm not going to disagree with you that there are problematic elements to his persona. And I think 
I, but I think again, he's he's such a well personified version of of what these kind of films are all are. What they embrace, he's just an honest, genuine human being who has flaws. Who is not particularly great at acting, but he's he's immensely entertaining watching him. Which then, if that's going to be your standpoint on George Hardy, I brings us to the conventions. I love him. I don't love him in the conventions. So. After George Hardy realizes that there is this big cult of appreciation and mm. that there are mass gatherings every year to watch Troll 2 with fans, people who really appreciate, love, and support it, mm-hmm. he then decides to hit up Comic-Con and Horror-Con yep. to try and push his merchandise and the popularity he of the film for extra praise. fucked up here. <laughs> it wasn't smart. Let's be honest. Best worst movies are a niche market. It's a small cult of appreciation. Yeah. And the mainstream places like Comic-Con are not going to have the same market. I feel like it's like a niche within a niche. It makes niche look niche. I will say, though, I do find a weird that in the Horror-Con, there's... The, yeah, right? In the Horror-Con, there doesn't seem to be a single person who knows Troll 2. Yeah, weird, right? Yeah, you would think there would be some form of crossover between the fandoms. Maybe maybe prior to this documentary, because I think this documentary brought Troll 2 back into the light. So I think now, if he went to Horror-Con now, I think there would be people. I mean... If if we went to Horicon now, because the thing is, it's in it's in England as well. The Horicon isn't it like Manchester or something? I'm sure it's like a UK based Horicon. Yeah, because th- th- remember, there's that one. He's looking at me dead eye, but there is that one guy. I he didn't tries, know, I didn't know it was in England. No, there's that one guy he tries to have a conversation with, and it's the most mank accent. And he's like, he doesn't understand a word. He asks him to repeat himself like four times, and George is like, "Sorry, buddy, can you repeat that again? Cause I didn't get what you oh, said." That's horribly. You remember this? I don't remember this at all. It's great. I think he went in with the wrong expectations. Is the main kind of consensus there? The individual Troll 2 specific conventions where there are, there are thousands of people, there are people flying from Russia and all over the world to meet these people because they are fans of the movie. But you're right, you go to a larger convention and you alienate yourself a little bit. And I think the cracks start to show pretty early on at Comic-Con. So they get there and he's with Darren Ewing, Jason Wright, and Mm. uh, both teenage actors in the movies who played two of the boys that got turned into plants. And he's there, and throughout the entire day, he just keeps shouting and trying to peddle his wares and making funny old American jokes. He keeps saying the line as well, doesn't he? He keeps every... I love that line so much, but he almost wears into the ground, the campus and hospitality. He would go up to random fucking people in the street and say that line, and it's like, dude... And the way he presents it as well doesn't do the movie justice. No. He's like, I was in a movie. Have you seen my <laughs> movie, y'all? It's a good movie. That accent should be banished. But he, instead of going up to them and saying, oh, yeah, it's a movie, it is absolutely atrociously filmed, and mm. the humour comes from how bad it is unintentionally, yeah. the costumes are awful, the acting's awful, the dialogue is awful, and it all culminates in a masterpiece. <laughs> Go and watch it and then get back to me. But no, he just plays on himself as him being the star of Troll 2 and you should all go watch my movie because yeah. I'm famous. He's kind of pissed off at no one's seen Troll 2 is the main thing. Like, well, that becomes abundantly evident in Horicon. It's awkward. There's that one scene, I think it's Comic-Con that is the scene I'm thinking of when there's like an audience of like two old people who look like they wandered in there and got lost. Oh, this is the panel that they do. Yeah. They all sit and wait for questions oh, and people so to bad. ask them things. Only two people turn up to this this conference room oh, it's and so it's cringy. so 
so cringy. Oh. That must have already had him in a bad mood because he went 14,000 miles, I think it was, for Comic-Con. Yeah. And then to travel to Horicon afterwards and still get no recognition. He flew infuriating. to England, Ryan. It's in England. Like, I would probably kind of pissed off too. You, you are right. Let's be honest. You, you, you were 100% correct when you said he went about it the wrong way. He should have known his audience. He should have stuck with his audience. Like, if you're going to do this, there's probably a way to do this. Why didn't he invite people? Why didn't he say, like, all these people who showed up to uh, Troll 2, tr- uh, the Troll Olympics, whatever, whatever. That, why didn't he get those people to come with him? Or why didn't he have a bigger entourage? Pe- these people would have flown. If he was better at marketing, Liam, he wouldn't be a dentist. He'd be an actor. I'll be a dentist. But he gets there, and not only is he pissed off that nobody has seen his movie, he goes around and doesn't know any of the people from the horror movies. You've got big names there, Nightmare on Elm Street, and he walks around oblivious to what these films are, openly expresses his hostilities towards (laughs) horror movies and how much he doesn't like them, how he doesn't get why people like them, sits with the stars of these big movies, (laughs) makes them feel awkward, has them trying to peddle his movie, and then starts calling all of the people in this convention, calling them dirty, that he's had to wash his hands several times. <laughs> and he's blatantly saying to the camera, full volume, about how much gingivitis he's seen. <laughs> it's such a weird thing. It's like he's like at work while he's away. Like He's still doing the dentist shit while he's away. See, he was a natural-born dentist, not a natural-born actor. His dad knew it and pushed him into the right career path for him. That's a good point. Yeah, they, they do have scenes with his parents, and they, his parents are saying acting was kind of above it. Like it was, it was never his destiny, let's be honest. He was in one or two really shitty movies back in the 90s. But uh, he has this legacy that I just feel like was a little bit underappreciated and still is a little bit under, underappreciated. And I'm, I'm glad that Michael Paul Stevenson gave him the chance to... I don't know, be famous again for just a little bit. Just a little bit. That's just, probably that's... all I'll ever get. I mean, he did say at the end of this movie that he would 100% do a Troll 3, and I just saw his eyes sparkle at the thought of being in front of the camera again. Speaking of George Hardy's parents, we take a little trip to meet Robert Ormsby in his natural habitat, and that is Grandpa Seth, who played George Hardy's dad in the movies. Your favourite. My absolute favourite. And you know what? Seeing him in his environment, doing what he does, he's even more my favourite. He was so cute. So cute. He was saying that he's always played old men when he's been acting, and he's now retired, but when we get to his house, he's just such a cute little hoarder. He looks the same. He looks like he hasn't aged a day. Oh, not a day, but that's part of Grandpa Seth's magical powers. He doesn't age. You know those actors who are, like, born old? Like, I'm thinking, I'm trying, I'm going to think of none now, but, like, do you know the grandpa from, like, Everybody Loves Raymond and shit like that. Yeah, I, I feel like Dame Judy Dench has always been. Yeah, Dame Judy. Like, uh, oh, what's the other one? Um, how have I forgotten her? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith. She, yeah, she's another one that I just feel like was born old. And I feel like Grandpa Seth would have fit into that category. If he was more popular, would have fit into that category of people born old. Oh, but his house is absolutely filled with books. And that is just my spirit animal right there. I feel like you're going to grow into Grandpa Seth. I, I feel hope like... so. Um, he's sat in his little <laughs> armchair and he just has a stack of books next to him. You see his walls and there's just books on shelves. There's just stacks and stacks and stacks of books. And how is that not just living your best life? Am I looking at my future with you? You can do worse than Grandpa Seth. Yeah, you can tell he's just a tender soul, isn't he? He's just really cute, and he has his own little, little bookshop. But I feel like that happiness is completely juxtaposed when we go out and meet Margot Prey. Oh my god, what a fucking scene. What a genuinely heart-wrenching scene. So Margot Prey plays Joshua's mom, Diana Waits, and they kind of get to uh, Margot's house. They're kind of greeted with this weird sign on the door that basically says, trespassers will be shot. <laughs> yeah, a bit nervous, just sat there like, 
What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> it's like, well, she could pull a gun on us. She, she, shoot us she could literally there. kill us. If you're in the farmer's field, you might get hit with some rock salt, but that's the worst you're going to get around these parts. You are such a hillbilly, and I never noticed it. Get off the farm, you boys! Sorry, I'm going to move on now. So they build up the courage to go and knock on Margot's door, and she answers, and... It's tragic. It is tragic. Really, you can see really by sad. her demeanor immediately that life has not been kind to her. She has this, like... I, I hate talking about her in this way, because she seems like a genuinely lovely lady, but she, I don't think life's been kind to her. I think she... she I mean, she's looking after her ill and elderly mum. She keeps talking about how she wants to get back into acting and how she hasn't done much acting, but she keeps studying acting. And she clearly has some form of agoraphobia where yeah. she's not willing to leave the house and she has a lot of complex emotions. Well, they invite her to the the, the panel, the, the last panel that they do with uh, with Claudio and with everyone, um, and she refuses. She basically is the, one of the only cast members who doesn't want to come back for the panel, which is so just, sad. Yeah, she just says it's complicated, and when she's explained to them as they're leaving about leaving the house she says there's an intense scream sometimes that's mm. really hard to deal with and she literally as leaving repeats the scream and just screeches really loudly and says that's what the noise is like but I also, it's heartbreaking i don't think this was the, uh, this isn't the case of uh, when we talk about showgirls next week what we're gonna we're kind of get gonna get into an actresses whose career was ruined i guess you could compare it to connie the actress who plays the daughter whereas her career kind of didn't really recover from this. But I also don't think Troll 2 was to blame for Margot's kind of future. No, in the movie, she's quite eccentric anyway. And the fact that I think she's having to look after her mother in her old age, she's had this tumultuous experience with the movie. And I imagine with the fandom, I imagine people have said all kinds of nasty things to her over the years, which won't have helped her mental well-being at all. And she really looks like she needs a good rest. And I think that would really benefit her. All I want to know is, if, if you are listening, Margot, we love you. We think you did a great performance. I would sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat with you any day. Speaking of Row, Row, Row Your Boat, while they're in Margot's house, they do a rendition of this, the scene that is in Troll 2, where they're in the mm. family car and they're all singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat in the round. And George and Michael laugh during this because the whole thing's kind of absurd. That's they never tragic. expected to be doing this. But she gets so in her own head and paranoid thinking that laughing at her and she tries to be in on that joke like, yes, I know, I'm not very good. That's what my choir instructor said. We're not making fun at you. The scene is funny in general. What's happening is funny. And love yourself, girl. She should. She has every reason to. She's like, as far as acting goes, if I'm looking back at Troll 2, I would probably say she's one of the better actors. I think she's the one of the ones where you, yeah, she's still kind of wooden. Yeah, she still doesn't really emote all that much, but she's no, like, she's no Connie. She's no, um, she's no, she's no Deborah Reed, the actress who plays Credence, who's auspiciously missing from this documentary, right? Very auspiciously missing from this documentary. One of the biggest parts of the film is Credence, the druid witch, the crazy-eyed, um, oh my God, the reading her, she's kind of the setup for a lot of the best scenes, and she's, she's in, like, background shots of this. She's at a lot of the Comic-Cons, she's at a lot of the conventions, but she doesn't get a single word in and it's really really absent it's really 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 strange not to see her in this i also often wonder whether or not there was issues with getting her on camera i I don't know now let's get to the the main meat of this documentary as much as we love you george let's be honest about who the true star here is and that would be the director claudio fagrasso ab so fucking who is a character himself like if you think any of the characters in troll 2 were absurd you know nothing until you watch this and see what claudio fagrasso is like he's 
fucking brilliant. I'm not easily intimidated by people, but Claudio Fabrasso just puts the fear of God into my very bones. Yeah, so he's the director. If you haven't, I mean, you probably should have picked that up by now. Uh, he is the guy kind of pulling all the strings. And he comes back. Um, Michael Paul Stevenson gets him back for a lot of these conventions, a lot of these kind of popular ones in America, the ones in Salt Lake City. He comes and does quite a few panels. He discusses kind of the filming process and he even recreates a lot of the scenes with Michael Paul Stevenson and George Hardy. And it doesn't go very well. It does not go as well. It goes about as well as you might expect. But I can imagine when he first got contacted or called or whatever about Troll 2 taking off again, that his eyes lit up and he thought, yeah. yes, people are finally understanding my movie and it's going to get the recognition it deserves. When he heard there were rewards, I bet he was straight on the first plane, so excited to get there. He gives me such Tommy Wiseau vibes, though. It's that exact kind of filmmaker who is oblivious to the film he's made. Oh, complete lack of understanding on he, the film that he's made. He'll like, he will, he will indulge in the people that are there for his film. He'll talk to them, he'll have discussions with them, but the second they say anything negative about his film, he gets on the defensive pretty much immediately. Yeah, he absolutely wants the praise from this cult. However, he doesn't want any of the critique or the reasons about why they love it. When they watch the screenings and they laugh at the movie, which rightly so, he gets defensive still and yeah. doesn't understand why the audience is laughing. He has no doubt that it is definitely a horror comedy. He understands that. But he says, oh, they're laughing when they shouldn't be laughing, and then they're not laughing when they should be laughing. I think the words horror and comedy, I think he must have mixed them. He doesn't really understand what horror comedy is. I mean, I bet he would disagree. When we were watching this, he says that he directs in all of the language and he has a ton of English movies, but yeah. throughout it becomes really evident that oh, the language so barrier is real. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. There are panels where the actor who plays the, one of the teenage kids is the one in the plant pot. I think he was the plant pot kid, right? He was indeed. Yeah, he kind of talks about how he had to bring his own costumes to set and how his character was kind of left. Like, they didn't explain what happened to his character at the end. And oh, then... yeah, apparently... There were more lines to be said, yeah. and his character just got cut from the rest of the movie. And my favorite thing, and I think you can probably do this better than me, but the, the way he responds, the way Claudio Fragrasso responds to Jason when he says this, is he going, he calls him a dog, and he... On, wait, let's just get this straight. Who hasn't he called a dog? He, Yeah, his, his role in this film is to go around and call everyone in the cast a dog. An actor dog is his favorite. You actor dogs! Actor You're all dogs. actor dogs! Well, essentially, he just said, if you were a better actor, then we would have had more scenes, but we had to scrape the bottom of the barrel for you. He doesn't like people ad-libbing. He doesn't like people laughing during the scenes. There's a scene where um, George and Michael, the dad and the son, recreate the infamous uh, you can't piss in hospitality scene, and they're laughing the whole way through because they're having fun with it. They're having a good time. And he's fucking having none of it. None of it. He storms up to George just like, you never change! You act a dog. <laughs> you were a dog then, you were a dog now. <laughs> it's fucking brilliant, man. But he doesn't know understand why these adults are laughing whilst doing this even even if this wasn't a funny scene in general and this wasn't entertaining in mm. troll 2 the fact that these actors are doing it again in their adulthood while michael is now a massive man being thrown onto a bed saying what are you going to do to me daddy it's absolutely <laughs> it absurd so creepy when you why say wouldn't that? you laugh i don't like you saying that and i really <laughs> wish you never say it again <laughs> fucking awful sorry daddy uh, <laughs> yeah, I think he is the most outlandish character in both films combined. And he wants to make Troll 2 Part 2. Not Troll 3, Troll 2 Part 2. That's kind of how they end the film is that they, they say that, yeah, I'm going to make an, I'm gonna make another one. <laughs> but you're right, he kind of is, again, it's just completely oblivious, completely kind of oblivious to his actor's needs and his actor's wants. He, what's that scene? There's a scene with uh, two of the actors who play trolls. Fucking favorite scene of the it's entire hilarious. movie. So... These two actors are sat talking to the camera, giving a standard interview as you do. 
Slating it a little bit. Slating it a lot. <laughs> slating it a lot, come on. Because it's Troll 2. Of course you go and slate it and tell them what your problems were. As they're talking, the Jaws theme song may as well start playing. <laughs> but Grasso just turns up and just comes onto the screen behind them and stands and just waits as the speaking. One of them sees him and shuts up. The other one doesn't. He keeps talking. So funny. Eventually catches his eye and he shits himself and turns around. But then he goes back to continue the interview like nothing happened. And Vagrasso turns around like, what? You don't remember me? You're all director? And then they have to stop the interview. Like, yes, yes, of course we remember you. And it's so deliciously finger-licking awkward. It's like one. Of, I think it's a really relatable moment. Like, who hasn't been there when they're accidentally talking bad about someone, and then that person is like, "It's the mean girl scene." It's like when, the, oh, and what do you think about Regina? Like, what do you think when she said this? And it's like, oh, really? Well, cool. What do you think about this? And she's actually on the other line, and it's like a three-way call. It's exactly that scene where it's like, record scratch. Fuck, I fucked up here. It's it's so fucking. I bet I bet when Michael uh, Paul Stevenson was filming it, he was like, "This is the moment." Like he could have mentioned it at any time, and he was like, "I'm just want to see what happens." There's absolutely no way I would dare to work under for Grasso. Oh, fuck no. He is a slave driver to the end. He knows exactly what he wants. And even if you're not in his movie 20 years on, you still have to be his actor and perform the way he wants you to perform. I love this film. I love this documentary. I love both of them. I love Troll 2. I was very vocal about that on the podcast. I think it's one of my favorite films of all time. It's a film that kind of got me into my love for bad films. And I'm very appreciative to Fergrasso for that. I'm very appreciative to everyone. I wonder how this was filming this for Michael behind the camera. Some of these people he hasn't seen in years. Yeah. Um, he does an interview with Don Packard. Oh, God, I forgot about this. Who played the convenience store owner. And I don't think Don really knew about this cult of appreciation, clearly. But as he is talking to him in his apartment... He says that during Troll 2, his performance was not an act at all. That was the real him. Because Don has a weird background, Yeah, Don has a really weird background. Um, He came from a background where he was let out from a psychiatric institute on day release to film his scenes. And I don't know how well his memory is of the actual film itself, because when Michael's interviewing him, he talks about how much he hated him. Oh, he clearly remembers the film well. He's, he's like, I remember there was this kid, and I couldn't stand him. I remember when we had the ice cream, and we had force feed him. I just remember thinking, I really want to grab this kid's head and just shove it into the ice cream. However, he clearly <laughs> had no idea that no. he was talking to that same kid behind the camera. Michael was recording it, and he just didn't recognize the old form, apparently. Which and must have been hilarious for Michael. Must have been hilarious. I wonder at what point he was like, by the way, we're going to go to this convention together, and at some point I should tell you that I was that kid. Yep, it's me, Josh. Um, but again, like Don, I think Don gets quite a good, nice little redemptive arc where he has interviews where people, where he's sitting next to people during the screenings and people turn to him and say, look, you were great. Like, we really enjoyed your performance. And he's so genuinely taken aback by it. Oh, he's so grateful. He comes out and it's so adorable. They start clapping. He starts raising his hands in the air. Like, come on, clap for me. It's cute as fuck. Like, cute it's so as fucking cute. Fuck. Absolutely heartwarming. And I'm so glad I got to see this. And it yeah. is nice to know that these people are getting some appreciation, especially people like Michael, who've now made this great film, and some of the older actors like Robert Ormsby and Don yeah. Packard getting to see some benefits of the and work George they did Hardy. back in the day. I know you don't like No, him. not George Hardy. I still, if he, like, if he writes in and lets me know that he, he is an in. absolute <laughs> ambition hound and he's aiming for the stars, I'm down for that. Do I will take back everything I've said, but that doesn't get discussed in the documentary and you just see his mean side slip out once in a while. Do you think we could get him as a fifth host if we tell him it's a Troll 2 podcast? 
If he doesn't punch me in the face, <laughs> if he hears this, he's not going to like it. I love you, George. I think you're a genius. I think everyone in this film's a genius. I do. My heart bleeds a little bit for Margot and for Connie. I think their careers did kind of. There was some damage taken after this film, but I'm glad everyone else. I mean, everyone gets that moment to to be appreciated, and everyone gets that moment to kind of bask in the the love that is the love for this film. I think I'm ready to kind of talk about my final thoughts about this film. I think it's a lovely redemptive arc, mostly for Michael, um, as a kid who wanted to be an actor, kind of having his dreams ripped away from him. To come back and make one of my favorite documentaries I've ever seen is such an achievement. And I would say that the real star of this is actually Michael, 100%. I think this is a well well worth anyone's time if you if you have seen the film. Even if you haven't seen the film, it's an interesting watch and it will probably inspire you to watch the film. Do you have any final thoughts? I thought I'd really give you my final thoughts, but closing statements. That's what I'm after, yeah. Closing statements. Let's say watch 12 fucking 2. Go watch your girls in preparation. Keep <sighs> listening to us. Give us a follow. Give us a like. And you can find us at the social medias where I'm sure Liam will give you all the details. Okay. Instagram, Bad Taste Buds. Just search that. Twitter, Bad Taste Buds Pod. Search that. <laughs> search that. Uh, Facebook. What were we on Facebook? Bad Taste Buds podcast on Facebook. Whoa, Bad Taste Buds. I did not see that coming. <laughs> Fuck you. At least we're consistent. Well, you're going to love this one. The, the website, badtastebuds.com. Next week, obviously, we're doing Showgirls for our main episode. And we'll be yes, and Ryan's you are so all excited. fucking welcome. It's great. If you haven't seen Showgirls, watch it in preparation. Do your, little, do your research for the episode if you want. Watch it with us on the day. That's fine, too. It's one of Ryan's favorite films. It's one of my favorite films. I would put it in my top 10 best worst any day. And for our point five episode, we'll be looking at the recent documentary. We'll look at two documentaries in a row this time. You don't know me. You which... don't know me. Were you waiting to do that? Is that why you <laughs> perched at the mic? Um, yeah, which follows Elizabeth Berkeley. The the cult. There is a cult again of appreciation behind Showgirls, which is totally deserved. It kind of follows whether or not that's a genuine masterpiece or a piece of trash, which we will discuss next week. Uh, do give us some love. Find us on Apple Podcasts where you can leave us a review. Follow us on any podcast streaming service you have. We are on all of them now. Um, but do check us out on our socials as well. Any love you leave us is really greatly appreciated. Stay green and slimy. Bye.